We're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 again today. As we march our way through this incredible book, I will, we'll be actually looking at a passage in Ezekiel before we get to Daniel 8, but uh, this is an amazing and incredible book written by an incredible and amazing man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, blessed and loved by the God of heaven, guided by the hand of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and Daniel, one of only two major Bible characters of whom the Holy Spirit did not record any sin that they, that they committed. That does not mean that they were sinless, for no one is sinless, of course, except the God-man, Jesus Christ. But in the mercy of God, the Holy Spirit did not direct any of the Bible writers to record any sin that these two men committed. Daniel, of course, is the one, and Joseph is the other. But I want to show you a, a fascinating passage by way of, of introduction today <clears throat> in the book of, of Ezekiel in chapter 14. Ezekiel in chapter 14. <clears throat> Ezekiel was a captive in Babylon, just as Daniel was. Based on information in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel was taken to Babylon in what Bible students call the second deportation. There were three deportations when Nebuchadnezzar overran uh, Judah and, and took, the, the whole, took the whole country captive eventually. Uh, there were three deportations, and by deportation we may mean to be forcibly moved to Babylon with military force. Daniel was taken in the first deportation. Ezekiel was taken in the second deportation. Based on the information in Ezekiel 1, Daniel and Ezekiel were about the same age. Uh, but Ezekiel was a priest. He lived a few miles south of Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet was also alive at the same time. But he was 20 or 25 years older than Daniel and Ezekiel. But by the time of Daniel's prophecies, uh, by the time of Ezekiel's prophecies, rather, Daniel had been in Babylon for 15 or 20 years. He was already well known. He was serving with character and distinction in the government of Nebuchadnezzar. But some false prophets had been telling the people that God wasn't going to judge the nation very harshly for very long. They would soon be returning to the beautiful land of Judah, so they said. <clears throat> they said there, there are still a lot of righteous people among us. And, uh, and, and so they said, I'm sure that God is not going to judge us for very long. And with that background, with that, uh, that, context, that context, God gives Ezekiel a very interesting message to preach to the people in which he mentions Daniel. So we want to read, uh, we want to read Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 uh, up, up to verse 23. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12, up to the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men, same ones, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, 
they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, sword, go through the land and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beast and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both with sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you. You will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon in Jerusalem and all that I have brought upon it. And this is a very interesting verse. And they will comfort you when they see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. God says to Ezekiel, I have had it up to here with this unfaithful bunch of uh, people in Judah. He said there is no way that they could escape judgment. Uh, they, they are persistently unfaithful, God says. And even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were alive at the same time living in the land, I would still bring judgment to Judah. I would spare those three men, but I would still judge the land and the people are in it. He says, I will preserve a remnant. You'll be blessed when you see them. But he says, you're going to realize one day that I had cause to do everything that I did. God's judgment, of course, is always righteous. But this is, this is a very elite group of righteous men. Noah, the only man saved with his family from God's total destruction of the world and the worldwide flood. Job, who God said to Satan regarding Job, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him in all the earth. He's upright and blameless. He fears God and shuns evil. That's the words of God of Job. And, and Daniel, this angelic messenger sent to Daniel, which we'll see in Daniel chapter 10 in a few weeks. He calls Daniel, oh Daniel, man greatly beloved, greatly beloved by God. So God says to Ezekiel, the nation of Judah was so persistently unfaithful that there is no way that I could not judge them. Even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were alive together in the land, I'd still have to judge Judah. I would preserve them, but I'd have to judge Judah. So we see Daniel is listed by God in, in this very elite group of righteous men. He was faithful, loyal, trustworthy, consistent, dedicated, godly. We could go on and on and on. I started the message by calling him amazing and incredible, but that's hardly enough. God used Daniel to reveal to us this, this panoramic, prophetic view of his plans for the empires of the earth, his plans for the nation of Israel, his purposes for this world. Daniel was beloved of the Lord. Now if you look at chapter 8, we read the whole chapter last week, if you happen to, uh, to see or hear that message. And so we're just going to look at just a portion of it today. But the year was 332 B.C. The Persians were still the dominant force in the Middle East as they had been since Darius the Mede overthrew Babylon in 539 B.C., which Daniel recorded back in chapter 5. 
So the Persians have been the dominant empire now for a little over 200 years. But as we saw last Sunday, the billy goat from the west, Alexander the Great, was, was roaring across the landscape, defeating anything and everything that got in his way. He had met the Persians in battle twice already and had defeated them. But each time Darius III had escaped and enough Persians had, had gotten away that they could regather and regroup and try to re-strengthen their army. Realizing after the second battle that, that Persia could no longer protect Egypt, Alexander swept down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, crushing city after city, taking control of Egypt and Arabia, then turned northward again to meet the Persians in one big final battle, and this time Jerusalem was right in his path. The well-known historian Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote his book, uh, famous book, Antiquities of the Jews, in 94 A.D., about the same time that the Apostle John was writing Revelation, Josephus tells this history. He says, as Alexander approached the holy city, everyone was understandably terrified. But God had appeared to the high priest in a dream and told him to decorate the city and have everyone put on their finest garments, open the gates, and go out to greet Alexander as he approached. That's exactly what they did. When Alexander saw them coming out of the city to greet him, dressed in their finest festival clothing, the high priest leading them, he rode up to them and he saluted them. His generals thought he had lost his mind. When they asked him why he had not only shown mercy to the city, but why he was honoring the, the, the priest and these people, this, according to Josephus, was Alexander's reply. He said, I did not honor the high priest, but the God he represents. For I saw this very person in a dream, dressed exactly like this, when I was considering how to obtain dominion over Asia and defeat the Persians. In my dream, this person told me to not delay, but to move forward, and his God would grant me dominion over the Persians. Having not seen anyone yet in our travels and battles that looked like this, and now seeing this man and remembering my dream, I believe that his God will enable me to conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians, and that we will succeed in all our plans. So I will honor this man and his God. Very interesting. But the story gets even better. According to Josephus, the high priest brought Alexander into Jerusalem and up to the temple. Alexander offered a sacrifice to the Lord, according to the high priest's direction. And he treated everyone wonderfully. Then the high priest took Alexander into the back part of the temple and he showed him the scroll of the book of Daniel and showed him this passage in Daniel chapter, that we call Daniel chapter 8, that explains that a Greek king would defeat the Persians. Alexander supposed he was that very king. Remember, God had given this prophecy to Daniel 400 years, I'm sorry, 200 years before this happened. And so he unrolls the scroll of Daniel. He explains to him, as we saw last Sunday, there's this ram and there's this goat. The ram, the angel Gabriel tells, tells Daniel, represents Persia. This, this goat represents Greece and its first king. And the goat roars in from the west and pounds the daylights out of the ram and knocks him down and breaks his horn and tramples on it. Alexander's saying, hey, that's me. I beat him a couple times, and I'm headed for another battle again. And so Alexander figures, that God's talking about me. I had this dream of this priest, and here he is. He looks just like the guy in my dream. 
And he's telling me, and he's showing me, their, their God says I'm going to win. So as he prepared to leave Jerusalem, Alexander says to the high priest, is there something I can do for you or for your people in return for the divine direction you've received? The high priest said, uh, will you allow all of the Jews in your empire to follow the law of Moses and practice their faith and freedom? Alexander said, absolutely. The following year, Alexander did meet Darius III and his refurbished and enlarged army at the battle of what the ancient historians call Gagamila in what is now northern Iraq. The Persians were soundly defeated. Their army was virtually annihilated. Darius III was killed. The age of the Persian Empire was over. And Daniel chapter 8 and verse 7 was fulfilled, if you look at it in your page there. I saw him confronting the ram, the him meaning the goat. And he was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstanding, withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. That's exactly what happened at the Battle of Gagamela in 331 B.C. What's, always, what's also fascinating about this history by Josephus is that the Bible scoffers, and there are many, who say that Daniel 8 must have been written after the fact and not prophetically because it was so precise. They have no explanation for how the high priest could show Alexander the scroll of Daniel that mentions him if it was written after the fact. As we said last week, God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is eternal. He knows the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. We see, we have quoted that verse over and over again from Isaiah 46. God told Daniel that a powerful Greek king with a rapidly moving army would annihilate the Persian army and crush their empire, and he told him that 220 years before it happened, when Greece was nothing and Persia was everything. There's actually even more development or expansion of information regarding the Persian and Greek empires in chapters to come, primarily chapter 11, which we'll get to in the weeks ahead. But today we want to unpack a little bit more of the information in this vision that we read last week. So if you will look at verse 15 of Daniel chapter 8. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli and called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face in the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright, and he said to me, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is that, that is between his eyes is the first king. That's the, that's the passage that the, that the high priest showed to Alexander. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power, which we explained last week. 
And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. Now there's a lot of controversy among Bible students of varying theological positions, of course. But the fellows in my theological camp view this as a double fulfillment prophecy or a dual fulfillment prophecy. And what they mean is that there is a near fulfillment and a far off fulfillment. Uh, Or that the near fulfillment is a picture of another event yet to come at a later time. The reason for this, first of all, is the phrase, the time of the end. When the angel Gabriel says to Daniel at the end of verse 17, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. The obvious question is, the end of what? Well, the Hebrew word translated time there means a specific time or a specific season or an appointed time or season. And the word translated end means a finish or a completion, something final. And so the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that the vision refers to the completion of a specific time period, a final period of time. He goes further by calling it in the next couple of verses, the latter time of the indignation. He says in verse 19, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. You say, what in the world is he talking about? The latter time of the indignation. The word indignation means wrath, meaning the wrath of God. When God is indignant, when God is angry, when God is wrathful. Uh, we, we look at that, we who have read the book of Revelation, we're thinking, oh man, that's, that's, that's the tribulation. And in the outpouring of God's wrath, in fact, the scripture calls it the day of God's wrath. God's wrath has come. And so he said, in the latter time of the time of God's wrath, near the end of God's wrath, uh, the wrath. There's a, there's a definite article there. The indignation. That this time when God's wrath is being poured out on the earth and the appointed season when everything is winding up. So Gabriel says to Daniel, this vision refers to that end of time. The time of the end. The, near the end of God's outpouring of wrath. That, that's, that's what this vision is all about. And then he says in verse 23, in the latter time of their kingdom, which kingdom is he talking about now? Well, verse 22, Alexander's kingdom is, is, he dies, they break his kingdom into four pieces, and those four kingdoms arise out of the Greek empire, but not with Alexander's power, but in the latter time of their kingdom, near the end of when the Greeks are just about done and the Romans are going to take over. Comes about 150 B.C. approximately. He says, at the end of of that time period, there'll be another king who rises. And he's he's, he's going to be a fierce king who does terrible things to the Jewish people. So putting this all together, it appears that the fierce king who arises near the end of the Greek Empire is simply a foreshadowing of something that's going to take place during the final period of the wrath of God, the indignation. 
Gabriel also told Daniel that the, that the vision refers to many days in the future, he said in verse 26. So he said, seal it up, not seal it up in the sense of keeping it a secret, but seal it up in the sense of preserving it. So all of this has led my fellow Bible students to call Antiochus Epiphanes that we mentioned last week, to call him the Antichrist of the Old Testament. If you heard last week's study, you will remember that Antiochus IV, who called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, or God Manifest, he did horrible things to the Jewish people for 2,300 days, six years and about four months. And if they are correct, and, and I believe that they are, if this is correct, and I, I believe it is, we see in our passage then today an, another description of the Antichrist, another foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Antiochus uh, Epiphanes is the Old Testament type or foreshadowing of the end times Antichrist. So what is he going to be like? And I thank David Jeremiah for his thoughts on some of this outline. Give you a few thoughts here. What will he be like? First of all, he will be dynamic. Verse 23 says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features. The Hebrew word translated fierce means strong, intimidating, robust, energetic. Antiochus was apparently this type of man, and so will be the Antichrist. Bible expositor John Phillips, writing or commenting on this passage, he described in this way. He said, The world will go delirious with delight when the Antichrist reveals himself. He will seem to be the answer to all of its needs. He'll be filled with the fullness of Satan. He'll be handsome. He'll be a genius. He'll be at home with all the scientific disciplines. He'll be as brave as a lion. He'll have an air of mystery about him to tease the imagination or to chill the blood as whichever occasion may serve. He'll be a brilliant conversationalist in several different languages. He is going to be the idol of all mankind. And the Bible confirms this when it says, we saw it several weeks ago in Daniel chapter 7, that he will have a mouth speaking great things. Revelation 13 describes the Antichrist exactly the same way. He will have a mouth speaking great things. Very impressive. He will be, he will be dynamic. Secondly, he will be demonic. The king will arise having fierce features. He said, who understands sinister schemes, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. To understand sinister schemes, that phrase could also mean dark sayings, challenging riddles. Some Hebrew scholars believe this could be a reference to the occult. He'll appear to have a superhuman ability to solve problems, but he will be empowered by the dark side of the spirit world. His power will not come from himself. The Apostle Paul, of course, described the Antichrist the same way. 2 Thessalonians 2. He said he described the Antichrist by saying he will have power, signs, and lying wonders according to the workings of Satan. 2 Thessalonians 2.9. So the Antichrist will not only be dynamic, he will also be demonic. He'll be, thirdly, destructive. Verse 24 says, His power will be mighty, but not by His own power, and He shall destroy fearfully. But He will prosper and thrive. He's going to have this awesome ability to destroy His opposition. And one of His main targets will be the people of God. 
There's a lot of politicians out there today who would love to destroy their opposition. And they try to figure out ways to do that. If somebody says the wrong thing or something slips and the news media reports it over and over and over again. And, and they just try to take every single thing a person says and they twist it and figure out. Uh, well, what are they doing? They're trying to destroy the opposition. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes and we believe the Antichrist, he is going to be able to do it very, very successfully. He will destroy Fearfully. In other words, it's going to be absolutely amazing, absolutely awesome in his ability to totally destroy his opposition. Then he'll also be deceitful, verse 25. It says, through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. You know, Paul referred in the same passage we've talked about in 2 Thessalonians, he referred to the Antichrist as having unrighteous deception. He's going to promote treachery. He's going to pretend to be friendly and then turn on you. He will be a master at backstabbing and he's going to prosper while he's doing it. He will cause deceit to prosper under his rule. So he'll be dynamic, he'll be demonic, he'll be destructive, he'll be deceitful. He's also going to be defiant. Next phrase there in verse 25, he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, which is a reference to God, reference to the Messiah. He will be defiant. Antiochus Epiphanes claimed to be a god and he, and he demanded that those around him worship who he was. Here he's pictured rising even against the prince of princes, God. And in our parallel passage in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes that the Antichrist will exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. But thankfully, not only will he be dynamic and demonic and destructive and deceitful and defiant, he's going to be defeated Last phrase of verse 25, he shall be broken without human means. As we mentioned last week, uh, Antiochus was so enraged that the Maccabees had recaptured Jerusalem and reconsecrated the temple for the worship of Jehovah, what we call Hanukkah now today, that, that when, he, when he heard that they had recaptured Jerusalem and reconsecrated the temple and reinstituted the worship of, of, of the true and living God, Antiochus threatened to turn the whole city of Jerusalem into a cemetery. He's going to kill everybody and turn the whole town into a cemetery. But on his way to the holy city, <clears throat> he fell ill with a terrible disease that covered his body with ulcers and filled his digestive tract with worms. Josephus, the historian, again records that Antiochus' servants could hardly stand to carry his stretcher because of the horrible stench of his dying body. Oh, he was broken, but not with human means. Not by human means. The same thing is going to happen one day to the Antichrist when he is cast into the lake of fire. He will be defeated, but not, not with human hands. So Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, as he's known in history, was the first fulfillment of this description about 400 years after Daniel. But he certainly is a type, a foreshadowing of the ultimate 
and final Antichrist yet to appear many days into the future, as the angel Gabriel said. But we can't leave chapter 8 without noticing Daniel's response to all of this. After seeing the vision, look what he says in verse 27. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. After seeing the vision, after experiencing his encounter with the angel Gabriel, he was literally sick for days. This whole thing was overwhelming. It was upsetting. It totally rattled him in every way. It wiped him out. It made him sick. Talk about trauma. Daniel actually went through so much emotional, mental trauma seeing this vision and hearing the angel Gabriel describe these things to him. And he knew it was coming many, many years ahead. It just it, it literally made him sick for days. But you know when he recovered, what he did? He went back to work. He said, afterward I arose and went about the king's business. He resumed his routines. He fulfilled his responsibilities. He lived up to his obligations. He continued living his daily life for the glory of God. He didn't have all his questions about the future answered, and he didn't have to have all his questions about the future answered in order to live for God in the here and now. He didn't have to understand everything God showed him about the future in order to do right now what he knew to do. He was a man of character and personal holiness and, and dedication to God. He could serve God faithfully without all the answers to life's questions. What does that mean for you and me? I'll give you three short challenges and I'll be done. First of all, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Our eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God has everything under control. He is accomplishing His will and His purposes in this world. As we look around us and we see things happening in our country, and we see things happening in our world, and we say, oh no, what is this going to mean for me? What is going to happen? What are they going to do with God's people? What are they going to do to the churches of the Lord? What are they going to do to biblical counselors? What are they going to do to all this? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? And God is in heaven saying, chill out, guys. I know exactly what is going to happen. When and how and how it's going to work out. Be encouraged. I am still the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, eternal God. Everything is under control. May not look that way to you, but hey, from heaven's perspective, everything is under control. I am fulfilling my purposes. I am bringing to pass exactly what has to be brought to pass. I am preparing this world for the coming of Christ. I am preparing this world for future judgment in the tribulation. Everything is on schedule. It's happening just like I said it would. Just like I told Daniel that, 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 that the Persians were going to overthrow the Babylonians and that, and that the Greeks are going to overthrow the Persians. And I told him when and how and who it was going to be. I explained it all to him hundreds of years before it happened. Don't worry. I am in control. I know exactly what's going to happen and when and how. I just want you to do our second thing. Be faithful. Be encouraged. Be faithful. God is not looking for people who have all the answers to every question or think they do. 
He is looking for people who will serve faithfully in whatever circumstance he places them. As Daniel did, I fainted, I was sick, this overwhelmed me for days. But then I rose and went back to the king's business. Went back, did what I was supposed to do, fulfilled my responsibilities, lived up to my obligations, resumed my routines, continued to live my daily life for the glory of God. Be encouraged, be faithful, and then thirdly, be ready. Things are lining up. You know we're not date setters, we've talked about that many times before, but we're also not blind. We don't have all the answers to every detail, but I'll tell you, globalism is on the march, Bible prophecy is being fulfilled, I do not know when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. I, I, I certainly believe that, that it could be very, very soon. God may delay His coming. I have no idea what the date may be. And as I said, we're, we're not date setters. But boy, we better be ready. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, great. Praise God, you're ready. Unless there's some things in your life you need to straighten out. Maybe some things you need to make right with people. Maybe some things you need to stop doing, or maybe some things you need to start doing. Certainly, we need to be challenging our loved ones to come to Christ. And you and I need to be determined to walk the path of God, to, to, to walk in His ways, to be faithful. So just as Daniel rose up from after the, the trauma of, of, of observing all this and, and his encounter with the angel Gabriel explaining these things to him, I just leave this with you. Be encouraged, be faithful, and be ready. Let's pray. Lord, we certainly did not have the experience that Daniel had and actually encountering the angel Gabriel and listening to his voice as he explains this vision to him and tells him these various things that are going to happen. Daniel's day, it was far off in the future. In our day, this chapter's already, most of it's already taken place. And yet we know that there's still coming another Antiochus Epiphanes, another wicked, godless, man defiant against God, demonic in his power, deceitful and wicked, who's going, to, who's going to oppress the people of God. And yet, Lord, we know that you were in control of all of that. You had a purpose for it. You had a design for it. You were bringing to pass your will. And when we see on the other side of eternity, when we get to, get to heaven and we look back on this life, we will realize you were in control all the way. You were doing exactly what needed to be done, exactly what you planned to do. You were fulfilling your will and your purposes. Help us, Lord, to be a part of that by being faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.